And we're starting with verse 26. It says there this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, on his, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, and an important official in charge of all the treasury of Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This, this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. And then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, said the man, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's some water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot, and then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came out of the water, the, Philip, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, as we uh, consider this story, we pray for understanding on who you are and what you're calling us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're uh, continuing our winter series on the book of Acts today, and I'm following up on last week's incredible uh, sermon from uh, Jael, uh, who preached on Peter and Simon the Sorcerer, and if you did not uh, get a chance to hear that teaching, there's good news. You can go to avonhope.org and listen to the podcast or watch the video of that really, really uh, fantastic message, one of my favorites of the year, and I'm not just saying that. It was really fantastic. So, um, I am humbly trying to keep the ball rolling here as we continue on in Acts chapter 8. And our story today takes uh, place in the midst of the continuing tumultuous times for the newborn uh, church. Uh, Saul is still out there, the same Saul who was responsible for the stoning of Stephen just a few chapters before. He is still out trying to exterminate those who are sharing the good news about Jesus. And the, so the church is uh, scattered, but Philip, who was one of uh, Simon uh, Stephen's compatriots, is uh, still doing work along with the other uh, disciples and apostles, even though that they were scattered about. And so we read a little bit earlier in Acts chapter 8 that uh, Philip had been preaching in Samaria, 
and his and and towns uh, throughout the region and was so successful in that when he would leave a town, everyone who was sick was no longer sick, just like Jesus had done. Uh, that the, he brought great joy to the to the area, and so we pick up the story now, and we have the same Philip who had been preaching pre- previously, and he is instructed by uh, an angel, a messenger of God, to head to a particular road that goes between Jerusalem and Gaza. Now, he doesn't get any more instructions than that, but just go to the road, and he does that. And so he heads out and meets on this road a man from Ethiopia who is heading back after worshiping in Jerusalem. So a little bit about uh, Ethiopia and this man uh, from Ethiopia. So before there was Wakanda, there was uh, Kush, which is, is a description of and encompasses modern present-day Ethiopia, but also uh, the Sudan and even potentially across the Red Sea, all the, all the areas along the coast of the Red Sea and across the Red Sea into Yemen. And this was almost a, a mythical area at the time, um, thought to be very wealthy and have powerful rulers. In fact, this isn't the first mention of Ethiopia slash Cush uh, in uh, the Bible. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 38, we have another eunuch from uh, Ethiopia, uh, Ebed-Melech, who was responsible for rescu- rescuing the prophet Jeremiah from the cistern that he had been uh, thrown into. That's a whole other story. You can read about it in Jeremiah 38 and 39. But Jeremiah was thrown into a cistern that he couldn't get out of. And this Ethiopian, this, this Cushite uh, man had helped for, for him to be uh, rescued. And then uh, Cush is mentioned in other places in the Psalms. And some historians even link uh, the famous queen of Sheba who had uh, come to uh, visit Solomon in the 10th century uh, to the, the Kendikes, the, the powerful uh, women leaders of Cush. Uh, and again, that Kendike term, which we read in the passage here, is, is a description, much like Pharaoh, of these powerful women rulers in Ethiopia. And so the e- Ethiopian region had a long history with the Israelite uh, people, and actually with Christians uh, too. You may know that Ethiopia was the second uh, country only after Armenia to embrace nationally Christianity in the third century, and it should also be noted that there's some evidence that the Coptic Ethiopian church was a church that continued Seventh-day Sabbath observance well past the time when everyone else uh, abandoned that around, again, the third and the fourth Centuries. So there is a lot of history between Ethiopia and this or mythical Kush, if you will. It's not mythical, it's historical, but there was elements of it that was so in, in, enthralling that people thought of it all, all, almost mythologically. Ethiopian Kush and the Israelite people. Now, to this man, this eunuch man, so being a eunuch usually meant that you were unable to produce children, either naturally, it just didn't happen for you, or because of of surgery that you would have had to make your reproductive parts not reproductive. So that's what it meant to be a eunuch. Um, now this, this physical attribute had implications in the Jewish religious uh, worship practice. In Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 1, we read this. Now keeping in mind that this man is coming back 
from worshiping in Jerusalem. In Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 1, we read, No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. So we can imagine and infer that this man had gone up, the Ethiopians having a rich history between uh, Israel, had gone up to worship at Jerusalem, but had not been admitted into the assembly of the Lord for two reasons. First of all, he was a eunuch, and Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, prohibited him from really being completely embraced in the, by the assembly. And then by the fact that he was a foreigner. Uh, foreigners in Herod's temple did not have access to the most uh, essential parts of the temple. There were four courts in Herod's temple, the, the, the court for the Gentiles, the court for the women, the court for the Israelites, and the court for the priests. He was not allowed in but the furthest uh, court. And so this man had most likely gone to Jerusalem to uh, worship and had faced uh, racism and, and prejudice based on uh, the, the physical nature of his, of his circumstance. And so now he's on his way home after having been to Jerusalem, have, after worshiping, and he is reading from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 7. And I'll read it, the full passage directly from Isaiah 53, verse 7, right here. He says, uh, it says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. So Philip now, having been instructed to go down to this, uh, this road between Jerusalem and uh, Gaza, overhears this man, this eunuch man, who reading Isaiah chapter 53. And so uh, Philip asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And uh, the man had some serious questions. In fact, he had a very, very uh, great question. Who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And we're told that uh, Philip was inspired to take that passage of Isaiah chapter 53, that messianic passage, and talk about the good news of Jesus. And so here it's maybe uh, helpful to just recognize that it's hard to ignore the mandate given to the early Christians, the early followers of Jesus, and passed down through the ages to believers today that we are supposed, those who have embraced the relationship with Jesus, that we are supposed to help to communicate this good news about what God has done through Jesus to the human race. So if you embrace a relationship with Jesus, there's a mandate that was instituted that at, uh, through Jesus himself and in the beginning of the book of Acts that, hey, we're to share this uh, good news. And this story from uh, the story of Philip and this uh, Ethiopian man are a great example of God uh, working in a really positive way for this to happen. Uh, but the truth is that uh, for many of us, the idea of communicating the good news is really um, unsettling. I mean, uh, we know that it needs to be done, but we'd prefer somebody else to do it. Um, and I think there are some really legitimate reasons for our hesitancy maybe to embrace this idea that we, everyone, is supposed to be sharing uh, this, this news about Jesus. Uh, one is that we've seen models of 
communicating uh, religion that are really ineffective and quite possibly hurtful. Uh, it's hard to go too long riding on the subway without being yelled at by someone who uh, thinks they're communicating <laughs> good news that doesn't sound very good usually um, on uh, communicating their, their, their religious view. Oftentimes they are uh, Christians. Sometimes they might even be Ad Adventists. Gasp. Um, I, I, I'm not sure how effective that is, and I'm really not sure that I'm called to do uh, the same thing. You guys know what I'm talking about? You've been on the subway. Have you ever been yelled at about someone, by, by someone uh, about the good news? It never seems good. It never seems good on the subway. Um, so we've seen models of communicating religion that aren't effective and maybe are hurtful, and so I think this gives us, at least gives me reservations about whether I want to be associated with doing this or not. Secondly, uh, we don't, many of us don't think of ourselves as uh, preachers, and yet sharing the good news is most often uh, reported to be in the context of preaching, of preaching, and most of us just aren't going to be uh, preachers. We have other, other gifts, and so our our view of what it means to communicate the good news is, is too limited. Now, here at Avent Hope, in this community, we actually wrestled with this reality. Over the last few years, we've been contemplating our purpose and our mission and what we're trying to do here at Avent Hope. And we have a, a mission statement, if you will, that we are to nurture spiritual growth, communicate the good news, and embody the life and teachings of Jesus. We wanted to be real intentional with all of, that word, all of those words, but in particular, the part about the good news, that we communicate the good news, it's not just about preaching the good news, that communicating the good news actually is a very a broad concept, and there are many, many ways to communicate, and we know this. Philip was not, thankfully, he was not preaching to this man. He overheard the man in the chariot, and he got in the chariot, and yes, he would, did some teaching with him, but it was very one-to-one. -one. Preaching is, is, is a very particular thing that is not effective in many, many uh, circumstances. And so sometimes we think far too limited when we think about how do you effectively communicate the good news. It's not just preaching. And then finally, uh, we get nervous about the idea of sharing good news because we are unclear or even uh, misguided on what we should be communicating. We are unclear or maybe even misguided on what we should be communicating. I mean, in contemporary Christianity, uh, in Western Christianity in particular, and certainly in, in Adventism, there are mixed messages about what is most essential for us to be sharing. You guys with me? We're getting mixed messages about what is most essential to be uh, shared. I mean, what's most essential? Is it whether we should uh, have the freedom to uh, carry firearms? Did you guys see the pictures of that, that church? I mean, I don't know what's going on, but the church where they celebrated with AR-15s and they, they were wearing crowns and they had the crowns with the bullets on them. Now, I mean, God bless those people, but I just, that cannot possibly be the essential message that Christianity is called uh, to today, in my opinion. So, but, but you know, for them, that's, that, that apparently was the essential message at least that week. 
that they should have the freedom to carry AR-15s. So is, is that the essential thing that we should be communicating, or, or should we most be communicating what our political candidates should be? Or should we be uh, communicating what our diet should be? Uh, is that what's most essential? Or even which day of the week we should be worshiping on? Is that the most essential thing that we should be uh, communicating? And so there are a lot of messages in Christianity and certainly in Adventism about what is most essential for us to be communicating. And when we got a lot of messages and we're confused about that, or maybe even misguided, we end up not wanting to communicate anything because we're unsure. Now, Philip here is a great example on this one in particular. In verse 35, he hears this man and he's reading Isaiah chapter 53 and Philip knows exactly what he needs to communicate to this man. Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. He had a very, very clear message. He was gonna communicate about what God had done through Jesus on this man's behalf and all of humanity's behalf and that was the message. And he was so powerful doing it that after a while they went on, the man said, stop the chariot. I want to be a part of this body of people, this community. I want to follow this man, Jesus. And he was baptized right there very quickly. So razor sharp vision of what he should be communicating. And so sometimes, though, we are challenged because we have seen models of communication that aren't effective or we don't think of ourselves as, as preachers, or we are unclear or misguided in what we should be co communicating. Fortunately, the story of Philip helps us with us. With this said, beyond communicating the good news, uh, there is a more general and pervasive issue that is going on here in this story, and that is the receptivity of uh, of each of us to God's calling by his spirit. I mean, this is really the key lesson I would suggest to you, the story of Philip, that Philip was receptive and responsive to the communication of God, right? So he's, he's a well-known communicator of the, the, the good news, but when God comes to him and says, go down to this road and doesn't give him any more information than that, he goes. And then He's impressed that he needs to go up to this man in the chariot. He doesn't know the man. He just overhears him, so he runs up to the, the chariot. And then the man's talking, and he's impressed to ask us a very simple question. And then he teaches the man. And then the man is like, hey, I want to be baptized. Can we, I'm going to stop the chariot here. And Philip, again, is impressed to just do it. And so we see uh, Philip just following, just being receptive and being responsive to where God is leading, and this is really the essential teaching that we get out of this uh, story. And so we have to ask ourselves, I know as I was thinking about it, I have to ask myself, what inhibits us, what inhibits me from being more receptive and responsive to the Spirit when the Spirit uh, moves? And I would suggest to you that there are a number of reasons that we are challenged with that, that with this, and I'll speak for myself again. There are a number of reasons that I am challenged with being receptive and responsive. So I have three for you. The first of all, first one is that we are distracted uh, by all sorts of other things. I don't know about you, but I'm distracted, like all the time. You know how much stuff is coming in. You, you sit down to to read. I don't. I mean, I, you know. 
I have to buy books now. I'm back to buying books because I can be less distracted when I'm reading from paper because nobody will text me. By the way, just, I mean, this morning I was sharing with, with the, the, the 9 a.m. service and I was distracted because I forgot to go on airplane mode on my iPad and people were texting me. While I was up here, I had to stop texting me, Kyle. No, it wasn't Kyle. <laughs> it wasn't Kyle. <laughs> Probably my wife. I haven't looked yet, so I'll get to it, Sarah. I'm in trouble both for my wife and Kyle. It's bad for mentioning them. Um, we're distracted. We're distracted by so many things, and being distracted, it's hard sometimes to even hear God speaking to us. And if you can't hear God speak to you, it's really hard to be receptive and responsive. So much is going on. So We have so much busyness in our, our life. So little time and so many things coming in that it, it's, it's a challenge. We're distracted by other things, and so it's hard to be receptive and responsive. Secondly, secondly, we are scared of what God might ask us to do. We're scared. This, this is why sometimes we're not as receptive and responsive because we're scared to death of what God might ask us to do if we are receptive and responsive. You guys know what I'm talking about here? Have you ever been scared that if you get really serious about God and listening to God, he's going to ask something that is really going to mess up your life? I mean, it's one thing to assert intellectually that you believe something. And Christians are really great at this. And again, I would say like Adventists, you know, this is Adventist community. Adventists love like an intellectual faith. We believe these things. We believe these 28 things intellectually. They're in our mind. We have no problem. Many of us, well, I shouldn't say no problem. Some of us assert we, we like all 28. Some are like, eh, 26. Some are like 12. Some are like, eh, two. Wherever you are on that scale, we like the intellectual side, to assert intellectually that we are into these things. But it's a whole different story when you have to be responsive and reactive to what God is speaking that might involve some change and transformation in your life. That gets scary. It's not that scary to intellectually assert that you believe something. It's scary when change is going to happen, especially it's when it's changed to things that might be near and dear to our hearts. And so this leads to the third reason why we're not responsive and re receptive and responsive to what uh, God is, is speaking to us, and that is we don't trust God. We don't trust that God has our best intentions and best interests in sight. I mean, if we knew that God had our best intentions and interests in sight, why would we be afraid? I mean, we're only afraid because we think, ah, oh, this is going to mess things up. But if we're not uh, trusting that God's got everything in control and that he actually is looking out for our best interests, and even if there are some changes that he's asserting for us now or asking us to do something that doesn't seem like it makes any sense, we're going to be nervous. We don't trust that God is really looking out for our best interests. Uh, if I follow, this is really going to affect my relationship with someone or it's going to really affect my ability to do something the way that I currently have do, done it. And so we have distraction, we have fear, we have lack of trust. All of these are inhibitors in, in our minds to uh, keep us from really being more receptive and responsive to God's voice 
in our experience. And so that we're left with the question, well, what do we, what do, we do? How do we overcome distraction and fear and lack of trust in God? How do we abolish these inhibitors? And for this, we have to go to the story of uh, Jesus himself. We know that uh, Jesus himself was receptive to the Spirit, which is uh, somewhat maybe ironic to us because we think, you know, Jesus is the, uh, the one who founded the, the faith. What does he have to be responsive to? But Jesus was clearly responsive to the Spirit himself, that God's Spirit spoke to him. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 10, we read this, that just as Jesus himself was coming out of the water because he was impressed to be baptized, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And so Jesus himself had a relationship with this spirit. In Luke chapter 4, we're told that just after his baptism, uh, that uh, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And so Jesus was, again, impressed by the Spirit to go out into the wilderness, and he lived out there for 40 days. And then on coming back in Luke chapter 4 and, 4 and verse 14, we read that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in the synagogues and everyone praised him. Jesus himself was submissive and responsive to the, the Spirit. Further, we're told that by his death and resurrection, we we are given access to this spirit, and by we, I mean anyone who embraces what God has done on our behalf, we are given access to this spirit in a way in which humanity never had access before he came. In John chapter 16 and verse 17, verse 7, Jesus says this to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. They were very anxious because Jesus kept talking about the fact that he was going to be gone at some time, and the disciples were very, very anxious about the fact that he was leaving, but he says, it's, this is good for you. It's good for you that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the Spirit, the Advocate, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so the good news is, as we wrestle with the fact that, hey, distraction and fear and lack of trust are inhibitors for us and our ability to uh, respond and be receptive to God, that Jesus has come and he was already responsive and he was already receptive. And because he died and because he rose again and because he ascended, we have a new kind of access to this spirit. And as we accept and, and acknowledge what God has done through Jesus every single day, God is able to come in us and work in us and in our in our prefrontal cortex and give us the ability to be sensitive to his voice, to be receptive, to be responsive. And so as we embrace God's work on our behalf in Jesus and we look to him every day, I believe in the power of the resurrection and I want the Holy Spirit to work in me as we confess every day that we're in on this thing. God is able to come and do in us what we can't do for ourselves and give us receptivity and responsiveness to his spirit. Listen, Philip was no uh, unbelievable, outstanding guy. He was a normal person. But, but he was responsive and allowed the Spirit to work in him. He embraced what God had done through Jesus. And he, his receptivity to the Spirit was 
empowered, apparently, each and every day to the point where we get to the point we see him now being incredibly responsive and re- incredibly receptive. That when God tells him, go down to this road, he's willing to go because he trusts. It's worked before. Why not uh, now? This is the kind of relationship God is wanting uh, you and I to be and anyone who embraces a relationship with him. That we have receptivity and we are responsive when he speaks to us. That we're not afraid that he's not looking out for our best interests, that we know that he's looking out for our best interests, and if we follow, even if it seems a little sketchy at the time, he is going to take care of things. We can be responsive as God's Spirit is working in us and giving us further receptivity. The good news is that God really is looking out for our best interests. You know that, um, that eunuch man, if he had kept reading, and I hope he did, If he had kept reading in Isaiah chapter 53, he would have gotten some really great encouragement. So we said that he went up to Jerusalem, and while the the record doesn't tell, we know enough to know that he probably was not allowed to go into the full assembly because he was a eunuch and because he was a foreigner. But if he kept reading reading in Isaiah chapter 56, just three verses, three chapters from where we know he was reading, he would have gotten this really great news. Listen to what Isaiah 56 verse 3 says. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. God through Isaiah is speaking to us and speaking to that eunuch with good news. Hey, if you are, if you are not whole, if you are broken, if you aren't what you maybe want to be, there's room for you among God's people. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch Complain, I am only a dry tree. That's a euphemism. If I am only a dry tree, for this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. Hey, this is good news that, that, that Philip was sharing with this, uh, this man. And this is good news for you and me. As we embrace God's work, God can work in us and help us to be people that we are not naturally. And there's good news even for those of us who are broken, who feel like foreigners. And listen, I know there are those of you here who are struggling, who have things that the Spirit maybe has been speaking to your heart and you're scared. There's good news that God is going to take care of things. Let no foreigner who's bound to the Lord say, the Lord will exclude me. You are not to be excluded. Embrace God's work on your behalf, and God can do in you what you cannot do for yourselves. Let no eunuch complain. Let no one who is broken uh, complain. I am only a dry tree. I don't have enough on my own. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them... I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons or daughters. If you're here today and you are broken, if you're here today and you wish that you could be more receptive and responsive to God's spirit uh, speaking your hearts, but you're afraid, take heart. Embrace God's work on your behalf. I believe in the power of the resurrection. I want the spirit to work in me. God can work in you and make you new. Help you to be responsive and receptive. Receptive, And so may we be empowered to be receptive and responsive to the Spirit's moving. And may we be effective communicators of the good news in this broken world. Amen.